Welcome to Ask the Expert, a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording the event. We're going to post it on the Sugar Science Site YouTube channel shortly after the presentation. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. And today we have our uh, guest, Victoria Salem, PhD. She's coming to us from Imperial College in London. And the title of her talk is In Vivo Evidence for Eyelid Hub Cells. This is really an interesting concept and I cannot wait to hear from her. Um, she, Victoria is a senior clinical lecturer in bioengineering at Imperial College London. And she's also an honorary consultant in diabetes, endocrinologist and general internal medicine. Her research interests are in neuroendocrinology, and the gut-brain access as applied to the treatment of obesity and type 2 diabetes. She holds a, a Diabetes UK Harry Keene Fellowship, and her lab has established a longitudinal imaging of pancreatic eyelets in the anterior chamber of the murine or mouse eye, which has led to really uh, insights in the uh, into the coordinated behavior of the eyelet as a really a functional unit. She's also studied the physiological effects of the combination gut hormones and um, bariatric surgery on food reward processing, which is uh, shortened to fMRI, and oh, via fMRI, sorry, and then uh, glucose metabolism and energy expenditure in humans. She's developed novel imaging techniques to investigate brown adipose tissue physiology. She's working on rodent vagal deafferentation models to investigate the peripheral pathways of action of gut hormones. And finally, she's won the Julia Higgins Award for her powerful advocacy for female academic staff and her formal and informal um, mentorship of junior academics, which we totally laud you for doing that because I think mentorship is just so important, um, particularly now, um, you know, during the sort of as young scientists, we're in COVID and coming out of scientists. So that's amazing. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Monica, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here. So um, I am going to uh, very briefly today, because England are playing journey in the football, um, <laughs> give you a whistle-stop whistle tour of um, islet B-cell functional connectivity. So this is based on work that I've done in collaboration with Guy Rotter at Imperial College. Um, and as you've already said, I'm interested in functional imaging platforms. And so much of the work that I'm going to talk to you about today is based on this uh, platform that we set up Imperial. It was developed by uh, Stefan Speer and Pierre Bergeron in uh, the Karolinska and um, Alejandro Caicedo's group in Miami do this exceptionally well as well. But in essence, what we do is we take uh, donor mice um, that are genetically engineered to express the G-camp fluorophore. So this is a fluorescent calcium sensor specifically in their beta cells. We take their islets, we extract them, isolate them. We're then able to transplant them into the anterior chamber of a recipient mouse's eye. And they can see an islet sitting there. It grows a beautiful blood supply, a nerve supply. These islets are very functionally relevant. But of course, the beauty of this system is that they are optically accessible. So this is this little uh, recipient mouse here. He uh, is fast asleep, he's under anesthesia. And so that islet there can be longitudinally imaged time and time again, functionally using confocal microscopy. And um, Victoria, uh, you didn't can I just see intercede for one second? And also, this um, is this area of the eye that you're transplanting into, is that an immune protected space as well? It is, it is. 
yeah, it's considered to be relatively immune protected, but I think the reality is, is that once it implants and it gets a blood supply as it does, mm -hmm. that immune protection breaks down. Mm -hmm. And so this can also, so we use syngeneic recipients and as a result, they stay healthy for the lifetime of the recipient. Mm -hmm. um, but this has actually also been used as a model for looking at type one diabetes in terms of the immune, immune reduction. And, and um, so uh, it's not entirely, immune protected right. um i um uh, unfortunately can't immediately work out how to play that video but if you if i could you would see some beautiful calcium waves uh running across the image this video here of this islet sitting in the anterior chamber of the eye okay so that's the platform that i'm going to talk to you about today um and uh, I want to talk to you about the, the islet as a functional unit. So we all know that within an islet, there are hundreds of thousands of beta cells that each and individually have all of the machinery required to uh, secrete insulin. They sense glucose, you get closing of the potassium channels, that depolarizes the cell, opens uh, calcium channels, calcium rushes into the cell, and that is coupled to insulin secretion. But what we are much more interested in is how the islet does that as a concerted unit. And well before I was able to show you direct images of uh, a pancreatic islet in vivo showing coordinated calcium wave-like behavior, we had a huge number of cl cl clues that B cells work in unison. So uh, we know that insulin um, secretion happens really very abruptly in response to the stimulus of raising glucose. Uh, you can argue that it's just as important for B cells to stop secreting insulin quickly to avoid hypos. We know that insulin, as is true of many hormones, is, is secreted in a pulsatile fashion. And we know, of course, that there are electrical connections between these excitable cells called connexins. So um, of late, probably in the last decade or so, there's been a huge amount of, of, of interest in trying to understand the functional syncytium of beta cells under normal conditions, but also how that might go wrong in disease. Okay, so that's where I'm coming from. Great. Um, as, as always, we stand on the shoulder of giants. So uh, this work was really started by Stosia and Rupnik in Slovenia, where, and this is, you know, 10 or, or so year old data now, they started off looking at pancreatic slices. So these are slices of mouse pancreas that are set uh, in gel, and they uh, add a dye to this, and they look at calcium activity across pancreatic islets in slices on a slide. And they were able to show these runs of calcium uh, waves starting always at one side of the islet in the time frame that they were looking at over an hour or six hours, starting on one side and moving to the other side. And then because they are mathematicians and physicists at heart, they started looking at the individual calcium readouts from individual beta cells within that islet. And they applied mathematical analyses to these. So the first thing they did is they assigned uh, basically uh, a correlation analysis. They, they looked to see to what extent the individual beta cell times, time series are correlated with one another. And this is the equation that they defined to use to do that. But in essence, what they showed is that all of the individual beta cells within the islet in low glucose are not really talking to each other, so they're not in, in sync, but they become very, very highly coordinated across the entire cross-section of the islet at high glucose. 
But more interestingly, they said, the functional connectivity patterns between beta cells exhibit small world properties. So they suggested that beta cells are not just forming a homogeneous geometric network, but they're connected in a functionally much more efficient way. And what that means mathematically is that they identified a small number of beta cells, maybe five or 10% of them, that, that are connected, that have got many, many more mathematical connections with all of the other beta cells in the islet. So a small number of super, super highly connected beta cells. And they suggested, they hypothesized, that maybe these highly connected beta cells had different electrical properties, conductance properties, that allowed them to maintain this coordinated pulsatile calcium spreading activity. Okay, um, uh, David Hodson, uh, uh, when he read that paper, I suspect was still working in France on uh, uh, endocrine networks in the pituitary gland. Uh, and then he came across to Imperial to work with Guy Rutter, the world famous islet biologist, and together they applied David Hodgson's mathematical analysis to look at coactivity between uh, calcium activity between neurons, and they applied that to the beta cells. So uh, David um, applied a slightly different coactivity statistic to the Slovenians to understand to what extent individual beta cell calcium signatures are in synch synchrony or are related to all of the others. And once again, David and Guy noted that there was a small proportion of beta cells whose activity was very highly connected to the activity of the rest of the so-called follower cells. And David turned these, these hub cells. Now, this was a very important paper and some metabolism back in 2016 because it wasn't just about mathematical analysis, they did some experimental testing of the system. And using optogenetic silencing, they found that when you silence the activity of hub cells, but not the majority of these follower cells, you uh, make the islet subsequently much less capable of mounting a coordinated oscillatory calcium insulin secretory response to a glucose challenge. So functional relevance that if you silence these hub cells, that you then make that islet incapable of reacting normally to a glucose challenge. They went on to do some IHC, some immunohistochemistry, and they suggested that these might also have a particular molecular phenotype associated with relative uh, immaturity. These, these hub beta cells may have less of the machinery required for the nuts and bolts of insulin secretion and more expression of the, so of the, of the enzymes and the proteins required for um, for metabolic sensing, so very high levels, for example, of glucokinase. So a suggestion that they've got a molecular fingerprint that sort of fits in with their functional relevance as coordinating cells. So that's in some, that's a summary of um, Hodgson and Rutter's in vivo work, oh, sorry, in vitro work, looking uh, for the evidence of functionally relevant hub cells in terms of um, um, pan islet um, calcium dynamics. So of course, the obvious next question is, do they exist in vivo? Now, I just want to point out that one of the other important um, observations from David's work in vitro was that these so-called hub cells also tended to appear to have 
pacemaker activity. Now, the way he would define that is by saying, well, I've identified these hubs, these highly connected cells, and it just so worked, turns out, that if I look at their calcium chases temporally, the hub cells are the ones that are leading the activity of all of the others. So is it possible that these hub cells are not just orchestrating uh, coordinated activity, but are they also sort of leading the way? Are they pacemakers? So these are all of the ideas that we're starting to develop both mathematically and experimentally from uh, David and Guy's work. And then I arrived in the lab with my interest in in vivo models. And so we went to Sweden and very gratefully uh, learned how to develop this platform uh, from, from Pierre Berggren and his team. And here you see a beautiful video of a pancreatic islet that is actively secreting insulin. And what you're seeing here as it lights up is that uh, fluorescent activity as a result of calcium bursts and you can see this pulsatile um, uh, a spread of calcium waves across a coordinated functioning healthy pancreatic islet of Langerhans okay that's so that's really, so we, really isn't it beautiful absolutely beautiful I mean you can also see that I don't know if you can appreciate it but these sort of black wormy like things they're, they're capillaries Mm. So we can even start to understand to what extent these calcium rays are, are related to capillaries. We can look at the topography. We can do staining, of course, you know, in, in genetic models that are actually fluorescent for, for nerve endings. We can start looking at the interaction between, um, uh, you know, nervous modulators. But um, for this first paper that you've asked me to talk about, what we did is we identified individual beta cells with this, um, within this um, waving islet and we took their calcium signatures. We looked at the, the graphs of their calcium activity over time. Okay, so this is an example of how we took the calcium activity, the, cal the fluorescent curve, and looked at the calcium activity of lots and lots and lots of different beta cells within that cross-section of island that we were imaging. And of course, because we've got a mouse sitting on a microscope, we were able to give an intravenous injection of glucose to that mouse. And we showed in vivo what had previously been showed in vitro, which is that at low glucose, the beta cells are sort of bumbling along. They're not really talking to each other. But in response to a glucose bolus, the beta cells uh, respond in unison and they continue for many, many, many minutes to uh, retain a highly coordinated wave-like pulsatile calcium activity. So this here is a topographical representation of each of those beta cells in the cross-section of islet in two dimensions that we looked at. This here is a typical correlation matrix looking at the uh, Pearson R value, the brighter the yellow, the more highly connected each cell is looking at its connection with each other cell across that cross-section of islet. And then we, weren't able to, we were able to do it not just in two dimensions, so across a single cross-section of islet, but because we uh, paid a lot of money for a beautiful piece of equipment that allowed us to move our, our lens very quickly, we can look at connectivity in one plane, in a second plane, and even in a third plane. So three-dimensional evidence for enhanced connectivity in response to glucose bolus in the mouse model. Beautiful results there. 
Uh, we uh, did the simple Pearson correlation statistic, which I've just shown you on those heat maps. We phoned up David, who by then had become a professor of islet biology in Birmingham, and he uh, ran his coactivity statistics for us and he revealed very much what had been shown in vitro was was that there was a, a small proportion of super highly connected so-called hub cells in the in vivo system that we were looking at again um, these connections the probability of connections between beta cells obeying a power law distribution in other words a small number of beta cells enjoying a huge number of connections with lots of other beta cells and then what I was interested in doing in the in vivo model was looking uh, at another way of mathematically analyzing association of act activity. So I developed Granger causality analysis. And remember that in vitro, David had suggested that his hub cells were also pacemakers. They were leading the train, so to speak. So I went on to identify which were the cells in our islets in the eye which were responding first. It turns out that they retain this identity for a number of trains of waves. So these leaders are always the leaders, at least for the time period that we were imaging them. And actually, uh, Vera Kravitz with Richard Benninger has just shown something similar in their in vitro model. So that, that's reassuring, although I've got some data to suggest that they don't retain that identity for many weeks or months. However, if we look at the, in, the leaders, the, the first responding beta cells in the mouse in vivo model, if we apply Granger causality analysis, they are indeed mathematically shown to be causally related to the activity of the rest of the beta cells in the islet. So some nice mixture again of experimental quick, and- um, Quick question. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great. This is just beautiful data. I wanted to just quickly ask you, is there any information while we're on this slide, is there any information talking or that suggests um, the leader for the hub cells develop first in early embryonic development? It's um, a hugely important question, which needs to be answered and hasn't yet been answered. I think that you're inferring from that question that they have a fixed or a predestined or predetermined identity. Yes. And my feeling is that that's not the case because my as yet unpublished data and Richard Benninger, I think will agree with me, he's in Colorado, these leader cells do not have a fixed identity over time, at least over, you know, they do for a few hours, but not over weeks or months. And so that kind of suggests that they're sort of of the moment. And whether this is a function of where they are at this point in time in terms of their current development, uh, within the islet so are they relatively immature within the islet at the moment and, or, or, or their geography or I don't know what it is but there's something about them at the moment that I think is functionally relevant but I don't think that that fate is predetermined but it's you know that's just a hunch we don't have any data really to support that you know in a confirmatory way one way or another. And we have a question from the audience um, are these connections disrupted if islets from diabetic T1D or T1, T2D or obese donors are utilized? Really, really clever question. We're doing that experiment now and um, in vivo, and if I've got data in vivo to show that as the animal gets fatter and more insulin resistant and more um, diabetic, glucose intolerant and then frankly diabetic, we see a disruption 
um, in this connectivity. Uh, so like glucolipotoxicity disrupts it, but really importantly, reversal of obesity restores it. Mm. What's really interesting is that um, if you do a genetic model um, of uh, loss of connectivity because of loss of connexin, so loss of the channel that actually um, allows beta cells to be electrically uh, coupled, you don't get a frankly diabetic mo model. You get a model that looks like early type 2 mm. and you lose that first phase beautiful pulsatile insulin secretion that is associated with healthy secretory function. And I think that's telling us something about how electrical Con uh, 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 conduction is important, not in terms of overall insulin secretion, but in terms of coordinated pulsatility. Yeah, that's this is so fascinating. And I mean, I just wanted to sort of do a. I mean, I, do you have a few more slides left? Do you want to continue? Or? I've got, I've got, I've got, um, I've got a, a couple. Uh, well, I've got some in vivo data. I will just very briefly explain to you that we did do this work in collaboration with Nikolai Ninov who also looked at in vivo, an in vivo platform for beta cell connections, um, uh, but he did it in a zebrafish model and found very similar results to us. But what he was able to do that we haven't yet been able to do in the mouse is ablate leader cells. And yeah. very much like David Hodson's work, he showed very beautifully that if you ablate a leader in vivo, but not a follower, you lose subsequent capacity for coordinated responses. So I did want to give him a shout out because he's been a wonderful collaborator as well. But I'm very happy to take questions now. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a couple of questions. So let's just sort of do a thought experiment, or I guess I would ask, is there any kind of relation between these leader cells and sort of vagal or pancreatic innervation? Uh, again, unanswered question. I think it's very likely. Hmm. So the electric, so the electrophysiologists just don't understand this they just don't get it and i understand where they're coming from partly because for 30 or 40 years they've been putting electrodes into beta cells individually and they haven't come across a hub that has resulted in the loss of activity of the whole islet so yeah. they can't understand it sort of experimentally and also if you think about the sort of the resistive conductance sort of you know um physics of it they, they they just don't buy that um you know a hub cell can have electrical um connection with cells that are more than two or three um cells away from it and and i buy that so it's quite possible that there are either paracrine or nervous regulators of this coordinated activity well, and we know yeah if you dial back though to the to the cardiac tissue right there's vagus yeah innervation of the SA node and then that spreads, right? It goes to the AV node and then spreads throughout the cardiac tissue to exert concerted contraction. So and then what, you know, and then we know, but uh, Philippe Blanco and Arun Trudar's work where they, you know, basically ablated the pancreatic nerve or they did pancreatic nerves, uh, sorry, electrostimulation and that inhibits recent onset T1D in the mouse. It was repeated really by Matthias von Harreth in San Diego. If he interfered with pancreatic, um, you know, uh, sympathetic nerve signaling, that again um, rescues T1D. And so yeah. you're kind of starting to see, like, okay, there's some kind of faction of the nerve. I we know that Galvani is very interested in this. We know that uh, Kevin Tracy at Set Point 
has uh, done some work to show uh, really that, um, you know, involving or interacting with the vagal nerve can decrease inflammation. So there's some mm. points. And then finally, you know, the, um, I mean, just in talking recently to uh, Jacob uh, Hexter Sorensen in uh, Denmark, you know, he has the company Gubra. He does a lot of opti uh, incredible visualization of tissues, including the eyelids. He has suggested in, in one of our talks, our interviews, that he's seen sort of hub-like activity of these cells happening and that they may, there may be some kind of intersection with the vagal, you know, sympathetic uh, nerves. So it's so interesting to me that this, you know, um, you guys are really sort of blowing the lid off um, sort of the status quo. And I think it's, it's important to look at other systems and like the heart, the cardiac system, and, um, and also the, these new, datas, uh, new data that's come out 2019 with Philippe Blanco's paper and 2020 with Mateus von Harris and start to think about what is that role of um, innovation. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The slight fly in the ointment there is when we look at uh, patients who have had um, eyelet transplants, so eyelet cell transplants or even whole pancreas transplants, they don't re-innovate. No. I mean, they might do a bit, but they don't really re-innovate. And yet they, they are essentially normoglycemic. Now we could have arguments about the true nature of the glycemic variability. But I do wonder to what extent it's hugely important. I think it's a really important area of, of research. Um, but it's, it's um, I mean, when you talk about the vagus, you know, you've got to think about both both sides of the vagus. The va I think yes. the vagal afferents yes. are just as important as the efferents. So what are the afferents picking up from activity that is then being taken to the brainstem and higher with regards, you know, um, CNS regulation of, of uh, glucose control? It's a hugely complex system. And as you say, it's really just the tip of the iceberg, but it's really exciting. No, it's super exciting. I think there's, you know, there's these different uh, disciplines that are kind of approaching this. And I think it would be fantastic for all those, you know, sort of people to get in a room and just brainstorm it. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Monica. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky that we're, we're, good, we're, we're in contact with one another. And we've got really good, good ties. But I mean, already in this field of uh, connectivity research people are coming up with different names and different approaches and I think if you if you're not careful and there isn't some concerted effort to make sure that everyone's singing off the same song sheet it can become quite confusing so I would be very keen to continue with these type of fora to ensure that we're all uh, um, you know working uh, in a concerted way much like the islet does <laughs> yeah completely Completely agree. Okay, well, so yeah, so if you want to continue, I'm sort of sorry to interject there, but no, no, that's okay. So, so I'll do. So, this is the the, the beautiful video of um, of uh, Nikolai's work, uh, but it, but again, you know what he was able to do with these pancreatic islets, which are in zebrafish. Uh, these are zebrafish larvae, only a few days old. They have just one pancreatic islet. They can be um, uh, immobilized and anesthetized uh, in the uh, imaging setting. And these zebrafish are genetically encoded to have red nuclei in their beta cells. So you can tell which cell is which. And they are also expressing G-CAMP in the cytoplasm of their beta cells. And he can do 
intracardiac injections of, of glucose to cause um, uh, activation of these islets. And he was able to show with some beautiful ablation experiments that if you ablate leader cells, but not control cells, the, uh, the islet subsequently becomes incapable of producing a coordinated response. So that's really all I wanted to say today. Um, I think that there is still a huge amount of work to do in, in, in terms of understanding to what extent the identity of these leader or hub cells is fixed, predetermined or an epiphenomenon, I don't know. Um, and I think that um, there's a huge amount to do with it in terms of sort of RNA-seq experiments to, to, to molecularly phenotype them, understand what makes them a hub. And as, I, as I've already mentioned, there are a huge number of different um, interpretations and also definitions. So, you know, David's identified hub cells that inhibit subsequent activity. Uh, Richard Benninger has identified those which cause um, disproportionately hyperactivation of the pan-calcium activity. Leader cells may be the first responders, or they may be those that are mathematically associated with the activity of others. And I think there's a call now really to come together and think about our nomenclature so that we can identify with better certainty what are the next most important research questions. So that's really what I wanted to say today. No, it's fantastic. I, I think, um... I, who is doing right now? Which lab is is really focused on the RNA seq work? It would be Guy. Sorry. It would be Guy Rutter. Yeah. Guy Guy Rutter is really really sort of um, pushing forward with that. That that's his baby. Um, and and David Hodson uh, again is interested in connectivity as a readout. I would say uh, of sort of global um, uh, pancreatic islet function is interested in uh, B cell maturation, et cetera. And Richard Benninger is a very, very keen player in this field. And you, you really need to look at his uh, papers recently coming out with Vera Kravitz. So, yes, so, so, we know about so, Vera, she's a superstar. She's, doing a lot she's of fantastic, things. yeah, she's fantastic, yeah. Um, well, this is just, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this sort of um, realm of exploration. I think you guys are really um, getting into some important um, functionality here. And it's really going to be exciting to see what you learn about these, you know, hubs. And I mean, we just sort of, I touched on this whole idea that the SA node is in the heart and it's a pacemaker of sorts, right? Or, or it is, it's the classic pacemaker, but it's kind of like, you know, what other organs physiologically have this kind of pacemaker or hub cell that you're talking about where it kind of like shifts around? It seems like it's mm -hmm. not really just a, a one and done. It's like, it seems like you, what you're, from what you're saying, uh, different cells become leaders. It's almost like horses or something. Okay, bring in the new fresh horses, let them do it for a yeah. while. The other ones will start later. And that's so interesting, like what? makes the you know how how do they know to be to turn on basically yes yeah absolutely some some recent data suggests that when the first lot of leaders are silenced that the next ones are ready there to sort of kick in um and you know it i'm just really interesting what are the what, what's observing that um i next time you invite me to talk i'll talk to you about some of our data from 
uh, uh, glucagon receptor, B-cell glucagon receptor knockout islets, because I suspect actually it's not the nerves, but it is the parachronology of the islet that is priming neighboring D-beta cells to have slightly different electrical properties that make them ready or not to respond to a glucose challenge. So I suspect it's the effect of glucagon and somatostatin on beta cells that is just as important as the effects of say acetyl coding, but we'll see. So like in the brain, the supporting cells are really uh, integrally important uh, for yeah, almost, absolutely. almost like the conductors of the orchestra. So correct. And it's, it's another it's another, you know, historically, we've tended to be quite um, quite partitioned in our thinking as biologists. And now, you know, this is a different way of looking things in terms of network theory. Um, you know, we're seeing a resurgence in, in terms of integrative physiology. You know, I, we really need to answer, answer this question, to what extent does a disrupted um, insulin um, secretory phenotype actually result from this loss of connectivity. Right. So we need to have people doing CLAMP studies or insulin positivity experiments in line with you know, these mathematical approaches to assessing coordinated behavior. And, and I just think, you know, it, it harbors a, an exciting new um, phase of, of integrative and collaborative research. Well, I hope that our young um, scientist follower, Jasmine Magira up at University of Alberta in Patrick McDonald's lab will get a chance to watch this, if not now, then re on recording, because she's an excellent patch clamper and in this space, yeah. so um, as she would be one yeah. to tap. And now it's time for you to get back to the England game. <laughs> oh my God, I don't even know what the score is. I can't bear to look. Please tell me what it is. <laughs> I will send you an email later. I'm sure yes, I will. <laughs> well, we, I mean, thank you so much. Thanks for the invite. Take care, my friend. You too. Bye bye.